another episode of Pod for Good. I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And Pod for Good is a podcast where we talk to the change agents working to make Tulsa a more resilient place. And today, we talk to Jennifer Solis, educator, youth minister, and community activist. We talk to Jennifer about their passion for diversity and inclusion. We discuss special education and the importance of people first language. We dive into the complicated relationship between the LGBTQ community and the United Methodist Church. And finally, Jennifer gives us the magic bullet to create an inclusive culture. Sort of. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Jennifer Solis, educator and community activist, on the pod today. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Educator and community activist. Not disruptor. We want to make that very clear. <laughs> activist. <laughs> what, what does a community activist and educator do? Very good question. Um, there's multiple components to it. Um, and a lot of it is just looking at systems of equity, systems of inequity, and then finding access points to be able to get in there and educate. Um, I do have a formal background in education and I have been a classroom teacher, but they're also within activism and with working for change. You don't just come in and change things. You have to educate the people that you need to act differently to affect the change. So in a way, um, activism or disrupting um, is, is education. So, and you, you've spent time working both inside and outside of those systems mm -hmm. that you try to, to work on, you know, what's your been, what's been your experience working on either side of, of a system? Um, so the systems that I tend to focus a lot on are education um, specifically around disability access and LGBTQ access. Um, and education really binds a lot of things together because it really does affect um, especially in Tulsa, I mean, real estate and um, different different things all the way from working directly with children and families all the way out. I mean, it really affects the whole city. Um, the other piece um, that I'm really passionate and work with is LGBTQ advocacy. Um, and for both of those, disability and education and LGBTQ issues, I'm, I'm on the inside and I'm also on the outside. So it is that dual um experience of these are these are identities of mine that i hold but then there's also the work that i do from the outside in to put pressure to change current systems so what's it like uh, it can be exhausting <laughs> it can be thrilling um it's very meaningful um it's the kind of work that even when little change happens there's typically a name and a face attached to it mm -hmm. and so it's at least for me, I think often in um, social justice work, you can get lost in the big picture and not understand. You don't have that immediate, like, this is helping this person. Um, but in the work that I do, there's typically, you can always boil it down to that that micro level of, like, mm -hmm. this one human being benefited from even this very small amount of change. So is that how you kind of keep going when uh, there's, a, I'll say, a setback, like the United Methodist Church, when they came out with their... Uh, stance on LGBTQ rights, you know, is that how you keep going is kind of put your head down and keep working with individuals, even, when you know, that there's something larger that's kind of working against you? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I see a lot of what I do as spiritual activism. Um, there's definitely for me a calling behind it. It's not just a hobby or something that I, you know, woke up one day and was like, this would be a great career path. <laughs> um, the connection with the church specifically, it's at this point almost a love-hate relationship. Um, I am currently also in a seminary program working on my Master's of Divinity, which I've been trying to not finish for the past 12 years. <laughs> and I keep coming back to it. And that, you know, for me is like the ultimate sign of like, this is... This is a path that no matter what I do, I can't shake it. It can't shake me. Um, and again, it's it's those pieces also combined, um, I'd say, with rootedness, with being in a place. Um, I'm multi-generational Methodist in Tulsa. I'm um, a third generation of a local congregation. I have a child who's a fourth generation. Um, the church that I've come through does a lot of great things, but also has a lot of things to work on equity-wise. And it's one of those, like, um, being part of the change is something that um, gives me energy and 
those kind of things. But also from the educator lens, it's like this place and these people that helped raise me and that I care deeply about, I can be a part of helping them to grow up to be who they want to be, which as an educator kind of, you know, sparks that fuzzy little spark in my heart um, and also gives me hope. I mean, I think that social justice work really, you can't, you can't do it without hope. Mm-hmm. So is this, is this a continuation of the Methodist fight over like gay marriage? Like did the gay marriage one transition into this or is this a completely sort of separate issue? Yes and no. Okay. Okay. So um, your Reader's Digest um, yes. synopsis here is that in 19, okay, in 1968, um, two different churches of the United Method, the Methodist Church at the time came together um, in a civil rights movement, basically saying we're going, we want to work really hard to not have segregated, racially segregated churches. For Every four years, the powers that be meet and reevaluate rules and polity and things like that. Four years later, in 1972, someone brought legislation to the floor. Um, the United Methodist Church grew up with the United States. So a lot of the process of the church looks a lot like American democracy, which is in itself also inherently very complicated, especially <laughs> at this time um, in the world. So to change the official rules, you it's very much a democratic process and you bring legislation and there's lobbies and committees and all those kind of things. Um, legislation was brought forth adding the words that um, no self, self-avowed practicing homosexual could be um, ordained um, within the United Methodist Church. And so every kind of four years from there, it's grown with language and barriers and things like that. This past year, they, or about four years ago, they had been duking it out again on, can we take this language out of the Book of Discipline? And it was halted in the middle of the the fight and basically said, we've been doing this for 30 years. I don't think this is going to be the year we um, come together and decide. So we're going to um, create a special process that deals just with this issue. Because before it had been all kinds of stuff like talking about retirement funds and everything else in addition to what the, the church termed as human sexuality because it's, they're too afraid to say gay or queer or LGBTQ and call it what it is. Um, so at the special general conference last, last May, last February, feels like a lifetime, was within a year um, in St. Louis. I was there and there was an official vote that went down on do we keep this language? Do we not keep this language? And then what do we do? What ended up happening was there was additional language added that said so that that went into effect January 1st of this year. So as of as as of current, the official stance is no openly LGBTQ person um, can be ordained um, as a United Methodist clergy. Technically, anybody can be a member. You're not supposed to bar LGBTQ people from being in the church. There's no official stance on if they can be in lay leadership or not. But the new pieces that were added was that any clergy person who officiates the same gender wedding um, must have charges brought against them the first time they do it. And then the second time they do it, like there's automatic defrocking removal kind of thing. So it became much more punitive and it became especially geared around um, people seeking ordination. Another piece that was added, um, there are different board, basically boards of review that you go through as you're going through the ordination process. And these new rules also said that any person going through the ordination process now has to be asked when they sit around this table, are you a gay person? Yeah. Um, whereas before it was very much don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. I was um, going to say like, so yeah, they were like, no, don't ask, don't tell is now working. So, so we must be more aggressive. Right. Yeah. And then there was a split because of those rules, right? Those rules being much more drastic than what was there before. So technically right now there, there is not, there has not been a formal split. Okay. Um, there's, I mean, for the past 30 years, there's been an ideological split um, that you will you will find, especially in Tulsa, you will find very large United Methodist churches with very progressive theologies, and you will find very large United Methodist churches with very conservative theologies. They both still have the same name. They both are connected to the same conference. They both, in theory, the United Methodist Church is a connectional system, so there's a lot of this theory of you put everything in one pot and every pull, everybody pulls out of it communally. Everybody's still connected by all of that right now. And one of the big 
pieces of tension and what it always goes back to. Um, and one of the really frustrating parts for those of us that do social justice work and think very deeply about theology is anytime there's a formal meeting where we go in to talk about now, what do we do with these LGBTQ people? The first question somebody asked is, what about our pensions? What about our money? And so um, that's been a lot of what's kept people kind of bound is because um, of pensions and property. So most United Methodist churches, the property is actually held by the conference. They don't own their own buildings. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very similar situation to what the Presbyterian Church went through about 15 years ago of we're now at a place where people are starting to ask the questions. How do you create that amicable divorce where people aren't um, being exploited and having to buy back their property and um, all of those kind of things? And so the the biggest news right now has been that there's been a um, a committee that has worked on some legisl legislation and brought it forth that has basically said, this is our idea for um, – what do they call it? Reconciliation through separation, which I also find is just a problematic <laughs> title. Yes. Um, to begin with, like putting things back together by tearing them asunder. Yes, makes complete sense. But there, at least now in like the global conversation, there's really this um, understanding that local churches have been functioning as different entities for a long time. Let's just formalize it and find a way to... Mm -hmm separate it to where people aren't no more harm is happening in the way that it has been well because i mean there are united methodist churches that are you know so-called open and affirming you know and i always wondered how that worked with the overall stance of a organization they're part of which is not very much not open and affirming it's complex and it's complicated um especially you know this is a piece that i've wrestled wrestled with for years um especially being on staff and working with youth, it's you can have one of the best affirming youth ministries. You can pull in all of the queer kids. You can provide these opportunities. But then when it comes down to it, if you're in a church, even if they are progressive, but won't officiate weddings or won't, mm -hmm. you know, take that next step, there still comes a point where you have to say, like, the buck stops here. And right. that tends to go into um, the difference between policy or polity and culture, which is one of the big things that I work on helping people understand is that we can change the words on the paper all day long. We can create the most affirming policy there is out there. We can, you know, write statements of full inclusion that are poetic and beautiful. But if the words don't come off the page and turn into action, and if the culture of the organization doesn't change, then effectively nothing has been done. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the things that I think is going to be very very important um, is for folks to see that even by adhering, even the progressive churches that have been saying, oh, no, but we're not those kind of Methodists. We're like this. Well, but still, there's been some complacency by mm -hmm. not fighting harder until now. And there's probably some implicit bias as a as a community you need to look at and dig through and and deal with. It's funny in your description of what your church entity is going through, because in a weird way, it has it is a very similar process to what Judaism has been going through, but not with LGBTQ people, but with interfaith people, where um, in the reform movement that I grew up in, they were actually more comfortable doing a a Jewish wedding between two men or two women than they were between a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person. And like what was in the, the bylaws and whatnot said one thing, most congregations did whatever the rabbi felt comfortable doing, but eventually people were like, are we not welcoming? Are we welcoming? Or are we not welcoming? Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's like slowly reform Judaism was the first one to allow like women rabbis, right? First to allow gay and lesbian rabbis. Like they, they're usually the first one, but there's still this weird, as long as they're Jewish, it's okay. But if they're not Jewish, then it gets a little tricky. And I'm like, how is this any different? Right. But, and that's really interesting because the, the church communities that I have grown up in in Tulsa have been some of the forerunners of interfaith dialogue and things like that. So I had the great experience of growing up doing things like teen trialogue yeah, and, being taken, I did. and being taken to mosques and being mm -hmm. taken to synagogues and doing all of those things. And so there's this element of like so many of the people that I worship with and, and work with and know, like they get interfaith work, like yeah. they understand it. But then if you try to 
it all translate, basically just say, let's look at this as otherness or as a difference and put it over here, it doesn't compute. And so it's it's kind of interesting when you have groups of people that have that scattered skill set of, I think maybe personally, I just over anticipate capacity. I'm like, oh, well, this should be easy. It's mm-hmm. just like this. And it's like, oh, but wait, it's not. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like internally, the rules are different than externally. Right. right? So like a lot of you know, um, religious groups in town are very comfortable doing interfaith work because it makes them feel like, you know, we are all collectively doing this thing. And isn't it great that we can share this thing? But when it comes to making changes internally, they're like, whoa, whoa, like this is my thing. Right. Like, why are you trying to make changes to my thing? And, you know, it's it's frustrating because you think, what, why did you spend all this time and energy teaching me how to be a well-educated interfaith customer, right? Uh, interfaith person in the world. and to just shut that off whenever we're talking about things inside our own faith. Right. It's very, there's no answer to that one. It's just frustrating. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. It is. Well, Sorry, listeners. I think, I think a lot of it too is don't ever estimate the power that fear and shame have to motivate folks. Right. And so I've run into a lot of people that through this process of working in the church specifically, I hear, I hear this phrase, I know this is the right thing to do and I want to do it. And I believe it in, believe in it. But I'm so afraid we're going to lose, pick something. Hmm. We're going to lose young people. We're going to lose money. We're going to lose credibility. Or old people with money. Right, exactly. (laughs) Right. So there's always this like fear piece. Hmm. And so within the work that I try to do too, it's that navigating. So how do you find out what people are afraid of? Yeah. And then how do you educate or, you know, not disprove that all your fears are wrong because fears usually have some legitimacy to Mm -hmm. them. But then help them understand that, like, this is an adaptive challenge. You know, right now, if this community, this congregation wants to be relevant in this place, together we're going to have to learn to navigate this or we're not. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the hardest things for people is to change. They have to admit that they may have been wrong about something for a very long time. Right. They may have been believing or doing something that they should rightly be ashamed of. And it's very hard for people to internalize that and become open to think, you know what? It doesn't matter how necessarily how bad I've been or how ashamed I should be. What matters is how do I make it better going forward? And that's a very difficult thing for people to do. Absolutely. Especially especially religious people, I, Mm -hmm. I would think when, because then you're fighting against tenants that are hundreds to thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think the other, the other piece of that a lot is the um, mushy gushy emotional part that religion has. And I think especially like in Christianity around high holiday celebrations, Christmas, it has smells, it has songs, it Mm -hmm. has these words that even in some hymns, you find yourself singing things and you're like, I don't necessarily (laughs) agree with this, or I know this is bad theology, but yet we keep doing it. And, you know, I, every, Every Christmas, um, I'm in a church that mm-hmm. has done years of work around Jewish Christian dialogue. And every time we sing all seven verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, I'm like, there's some problematic stuff here. <laughs> we should at least talk about it or, you know, name it like it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the reason we sing this is because it has this history and this meaning. Let's put it in contemporary light so we at least know what we're talking about. Right. But it's hard because it's Christmas and Christmas is grandma and cookies mm-hmm. and, you know, childhood memories and the most wonderful time of the year. And so, yeah, hacking through that part of people's deep religious mm-hmm. identity to, to make change is very, very hard. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that about a Christmas song because there's a, there's, a, there's a prayer that Jews do almost almost pretty much once a week where it used to just name like the forefathers of Judaism. So, you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then at some point in the 90s, they decided it's fair to add the women of that story into it. And so they added an extra verse, right? Which sort of, they had to, they had to manipulate the tune a little bit slightly to allow you to repeat that verse with four names instead of three names because one of them had two wives, which anyway... Also uh, problematic. Also, yeah, yeah, someone right. is, is tricked into a marriage for seven years, but we we don't talk about that. Anyway. <laughs> Celebrate in a song. Right. Yeah. And I remember like as a teenager, I was like, 
why do we need to change this? And then as I get older, I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> but it's still, it's still to this day, always sounds off to me, even though I'm happy we do it. Right. right. So changing things that are, especially things that, that people do when they're children in a religious thing, it, it gets, it gets problematic, mm-hmm. right? Cause people are used to hearing it a certain way. And when you change those things, it gets real. To be honest, we're kind of programmed a little bit. Oh yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's part of what... Wake up, religion. sheeple. Sorry. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, that's part of what religion is. I mean, this stuff is programmed into us from a very young age. And if we've been in the same, especially in the same congregation for 40, 50 years, it's very hard to... Ch- I, I think I've given you the example before when uh, I grew up Catholic, I'm a bit estranged now, but I do occasionally go back with my mother and they've changed some things, some just simple wording here and here and there. And I still have reflexes where I'll say the wrong thing. And I'm just like, wait, what, what happened now? You know, just because even though, even if I don't even really know what the thing <laughs> what it was supposed to mean, right. it's, it's pure reflex. Yeah. And so even that simple, meaningless change for me is difficult just because it's, what I'm comfortable with and what I'm used to. And that's not even talking about, you know, the big scary changes that, that, you know, a lot of what you address. Right. And from a religious education standpoint, you know, when we're working with children and youth, so much of that is done to help young people then be able to make meaning of their world and of their faith and eventually in adulthood. And that's also the root of religious trauma and spiritual Mm -hmm. harm especially when children and youth hear negatively connotated theology or damaging theology or for LGBTQ kids when they grow up in a place where they are always told they're going to hell or, mm-hmm. you know, that their identity is wrong. I mean, that also gets auto-programmed in to where, as an adult, you then have to go through that whole process of all the meaning that I made is wrong. It feels really weird to undo all of this. Right. We, I feel like we focused a lot on the religious side of um, inclusiveness, but you, you actually have done a lot of work outside of that. You mentioned education. You do occasional talks and presentations as well. Uh, beyond religion, what are some of the other areas? Yeah, let's inclusive? go to the fixable problem, education in this country. <laughs> yeah, I like to joke Ooh. that I bounce between um, two very robust, healthy <laughs> systems, education and religion. Uh. Um, yeah, those are my corners of the world. So... <laughs> I am, um, I have a master's in special education and I'm a special educator. Um, so education, specifically inclusive education, is another major passion of mine. In, in public schools today, we, um, there seems to be the, the collective knowledge that, oh, yes, students with disabilities go to, go to public schools. Once you get inside the public schools, what you are more likely to find than not is really segregated school culture where students with disabilities are outside of the regular education environment, more often than not in a self-contained classroom. they um, so You see this elementary through high school, um, and they're pulled, and, se- and instead of being educated alongside typically developing peers, they're educated in a separate room only with children with disabilities. Um, there have been lots of studies, lots of research, um, and even more just, I think, the anecdotal People who have lived through systems that have chosen to do it differently can attest that when from a very young age you put children with disabilities and without disabilities in the same room and you fund it well and you provide the support for Mm -hmm. everyone to get what they need, there's a magic that happens when inclusive community is created. My child, I have a nine-year-old, she's in the fourth grade, has had the opportunity to be in a place where they're very intentional about placing Children, especially with um, severe, severe to moderate and mild um, kiddos with autism in the classroom from pre-K on up. So from the time she was in kindergarten um, till now, she's had kids with nonverbal autism in her classroom. They were on a field trip a year or two ago, and some of those kiddos and their adult um, aides were with them. And there was another elementary school you know, making fun of the kids. Like, oh, look at those kids. They don't look like the kids. Why are they doing that? Why don't they stand still? And just instinctively, those kiddos know to turn around and go, some people use words, some people use signs, some people have a talker, everybody gets what they need, you know. 
Eight-year-olds never went to a conference on inclusion and diversity. The eight-year-olds mm-hmm. were not formally trained. Typically, there's not, you know, if there's like a, a need that has to be explicitly explained, if there's, you know, like a piece of equipment or something, the teachers will teach that. But it's really more just about being in community with each other and living and doing that together. So the, that's something that I push for very hard. But what, and one of the reasons that it's needed is because so often the gatekeepers to get kids into classrooms, children with disabilities into classrooms with typically developing peers are the people who have typically developing children who are convinced that the presence of that other child is going to lesser their child's education. I mean, isn't that the fear about most things in education is that people with children that have no difficulties in any certain areas are like having this kid, Mm -hmm. this kid with either a disability learning disability, speech disability of a different race, speaks a different language, is going to somehow diminish my child's education. I mean, that, that, that problem seems to affect every, every part of, of our educational system. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I, I completely agree. And I then offer people to consider the question of, you know, what is our educational system for? What are we educating children for? And what systems are we reinforcing? I personally know that I want my child to grow up to be a compassionate leader, a um, a leader and a citizen that can work with all different types of people. I don't necessarily believe that that happens through mastering standardized tests. Yeah, I don't necessarily believe that, you know, that those abilities come from memorizing multiplication facts. I believe that those abilities come through working in community and being exposed to all kinds of people. So I think it's important um, just as a, as a parent and an educator for kids to be around all types of people, mm-hmm. um, people on wheels, people that use alternative communication, people that look, act, think, worship, sound different than they do. Um, because the more exposure that they have to that early, the again, like very much like with religion, the less you have to unteach. <laughs> um, and the more that you just learn by doing, the more innate, it becomes well it's like you were talking about earlier the difference between policy and culture i mean it's using sort of the developing culture of that community to teach them about diversity and inclusion rather than creating a policy that says okay you and you need to understand diversity you know which isn't going to work just creating a climate where it is just part of the culture you know that that leads to people who are more inclusive And I think the more actually the more, especially in education and inclusive education, the more policy you put on it and the more requirements, the more difficult it becomes. Because um, in our current systems and structures where, you know, the worth of teachers humanity is based off of test scores and end of year things Mm -hmm. and you have you're expected to not only teach this curriculum, but you also have to teach these other skills and you have to do this and you have to do this when you just stack another requirement on. Oh, and you have to do this thing. It becomes just another box to check and it is you're looking for bare minimum kind of stuff because you're just so overwhelmed with the process of education. Mm -hmm. I would also argue that the way that we educate, train teachers to teach needs to be looked at um, because we still very much formally educate teachers to teach one slice of the children that are in the classroom and don't necessarily really teach how to teach all kids mm-hmm. um most most um typical teacher education programs you get one or two classes on teaching kids with disabilities two if you're lucky you're required to have one um but then what that means is you get kids in your class that you've never seen you've never worked with you've never had experience with and then you're expected to authentically interact and just like with children when you don't have experience with each other and you don't have the mm-hmm. opportunity to develop that relationship, it comes out as a stressor instead of a good thing. What would you suggest? I mean, say money wasn't a problem, right? Whatever this Just idea is. Maniacal laughter now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, would have all the funding it would need. What is the, what would you think would be the easiest solution? Is it a teacher who's just trained in this that the kids interact with on, on a daily basis? Like in elementary school and middle school, right? Which is a diversity and inclusion teacher. And that's all this teacher does. That way it's not another requirement on, a teacher trained in something else or what would be the, like I would say like the, not the easiest solution, but the, 
the fastest solution that could be put in place. Sure. I'm, you know, and I would almost offer that maybe the fastest solution isn't the best. Um, maybe slow and sustainable um, is, the, is the best way to go. Um, I am of the belief that inclusive culture is everybody's responsibility um, from the child to the parent. I think that oftentimes there are parents that think, oh, I don't have a child with a disability. This is not my problem. Anyone who is involved in a public school has a responsibility um, to help create inclusive culture. And this can be done, one, I mean, it follows money. Um, and sometimes when we talk about following the money, we talk about top-down federal dollars, state dollars. But you can also look at, um, you know, your PTA dollars. And, you know, a lot of schools also have foundations and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's you can look at then, you know, if – there's a parent or parents in that position, they can even start by raising the question of do our special education programs need X, Y, Z, or, um, you know, I know that we fund this field trip every year. What if we shifted the focus to make it a buddy program or, you know, looked at how they did things differently to create a more inclusive culture? Um, I think that school leadership is a great place to start because a lot of um, a lot of culture building really isn't expensive. Um, children with disabilities are frequently left out of the ordinary things that build community: sleepovers, birthday parties, playdates, things like that. So when you start by having someone who's intentional of, hey, we're going to schedule this playdate. Let's make sure to schedule it at this playground because it has ramps, and we know that every kid can access is different than we're going to schedule it at this part because this is where we've always done it and it's closest to the school, right? So, you know, how do we how do we do it and do it well? Um, I don't think there's a, a blanket or umbrella solution. I think it's everybody understanding where their power and their privilege lies and then choosing to make, even if everyone just chose one little step that they could do, I think that one little step together in community would make a profound difference. So you've been talking a lot about sort of the the equity of students with disabilities. Now, when we're talking about student disabilities, are the same issues and the same problems also the same ones when we're dealing with children who are LGBTQ plus? Absolutely. Okay. And I didn't want to put them in the disability camp because it's not a disability, <laughs> but, you know. Like Thank the you way, for clarifying yeah, that, Jesse. Right? Yeah. Listen, I want, I want our listeners to understand that. But it sounds like it's the same. The way to handle it seems to be the same. It's about making sure they are, they are, they are made, they are, and they are allowed to be included in a, you know, I don't want to say regular, but with every other student. Right. right. They, so you've you've hit on two really, um, really important yeah, topics. Chris. And <laughs> let me give you some big words for what All right. you just said. <laughs> um, so you brought up two really. Um, interesting concepts in that and they would be intersectionality and then how we view the other right so intersectionality being that concept of all the different pieces um, or identities that we hold in one person that come together so there are um, lots of folks lots of kids actually um, within our public school system who have a disability or what the public school defines as a disability um, autism a learning disability something like that but then also are on the LGBTQ spectrum, right? So that, in a way, is it's a double whammy, right? Because they're, one, fighting for access into um, the general education environment, but then they're also fighting this battle of, I know I'm different than the mass population for my identity as well. So it's this double difference kind of thing. Um, and really what it comes down to is how we how we or how the dominant culture or how the people that make the decisions um, look at people who are not like them. And then it becomes that issue of otherness, right? So typically um, in American education, um, wasn't set up for LGBTQ kids. You know, we have girls' bathrooms and boys' bathrooms. We typically have in some high schools, they'll have a girls' PE and a boys' PE, or they'll have um, like homecoming court. There's a king and a queen. And that's just the way it's always been and the way we've always done it. And, you know, again, my deeply held traditions 
are stuck in this and my family has been in the school for four generations and why would we change it? Well, we know now that there are lots of people around that would benefit from recreating those concepts. Um, and slowly it's happening, um, but it, it does take someone who is in a position of being able to help lead that conversation in a way that preserves, you know, 50 years of someone's legacy at an institution but and allows for them to continue it on, but also draws the circle wider to allow other people in. It, it makes me kind of think of something uh, in our Thrive class Marcia would talk about is that, you know, systems often do what they're designed to do. You know, it's not, we often think of these in terms of, oh, it's a broken system. It's, it's not necessarily that the system is broken. It's doing what it was designed to do. It was designed to protect certain groups of people, unfortunately, at the detriment of other groups of people. Right. You know, and that's like you were talking about earlier, Jesse, I mean, and you as well about how people are so worried that this protection that that they have experienced and they want the next generation to experience may be threatened by widening the circle and protecting everyone instead. Right. And that's definitely, I mean, the legacy of special ed. I typically start my talks with um, a legal overview of special education, um, which is really Supreme Court cases are the reason children with disabilities are even allowed to be in public schools, which basically goes back to somebody did something really exclusionary, kept somebody out, harmed them, and they had to fight for their right to be in. So then it becomes this. Well, in 1974, we got a law that said kids could be educated inside a public school. Um, when you think about it, 1974 really wasn't that long ago. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed in 1990. Um, yeah. Also not that long ago. Nope. Um, so that then very much when you think about it is that culture of like the policy has been in place. Everyone is just now comfortable with the words on the page. How do we get the words off the page and then actually bring these things into life, right? Um, so speaking of words, has anyone come up with a good replacement for ho homecoming king and queen? Um, some people just do homecoming royalty. All right. And you pick two. I'm trying to think of some other things that I've heard. Um, yeah, pretty much. Or yeah, the homecoming royalty. Language is so powerful. Yes. Right. Um, one of my big, um, another, another, I have many soap, soap boxes and yes. one of them is, yes. um, the power of language, especially in journalism, um, around kiddos with disabilities. And it does also translate into how we talk about kiddos, LGBTQ people as well. Um, it's the philosophy of how do you talk about someone and retain their humanity instead of steal it? Mm -hmm. Um, People first language is that concept in disability land. And it's about you put the person before whatever the thing is that they have. Right. So a child has autism, not an autistic child. Um, Susan uses a wheelchair, not Susan is wheelchair bound. It's this um, way of framing things without taking someone's humanity away or describing their situation mm -hmm. for them. Within that, there are a couple of exceptions to that because just of culture, um, a lot of deaf people, deaf is a community, so they call themselves deaf folks. Um, blind communities are often very similar, you, but you still always get people in there that are like, I am not blind. I have some vision. I am a low vision person. Kind of parallel to that is LGBTQ folks, right? The best thing to do is ask someone how they identify or what words do you use for themselves? Mm -hmm. Same thing you know, with kids with disabilities. What I always love working with young kids with disabilities is like, they don't know they have a disability. Oh no, I don't have a disability. I just use a wheelchair. I like rock on. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and from my lens, that's a more empowering way to go forward. The worst people in doing this and using people first language are typically um, folks in journalism, um, newspaper and TV um, reporters. Um, still tend to use very archaic language. You hear a lot of wheelchair bound. You hear a lot of this person suffers from epilepsy, arthritis, you know, pick your, pick your um, condition. And it's something that literally like at this point in my life grates on my ears mm -hmm. um, because it's 
within larger culture has become such a, a movement that I'm not exactly sure why it's been so, so, so slow to pick up in other mm. arenas. Well, and I think it's it's one of the sort of most basic form of privilege is that for people who are sort of in the, you know, dominant culture and whatever situation they're in, that generally they don't think about those types of, you know, the words that they use, the words that other people use. And it's very easy for them to say things like, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't let what other people say bother you, you know, and, um, you know, I've seen in school and TPS, they have a, I think it was maybe Eleanor Roosevelt saying something to the effect of, um, you know, you, nobody can ever, uh, diminish you without your permission or something to that effect. Make you feel inferior without right. your consent. Right. Yeah. Which to me, it's, it's the type of thing where it's almost a way to, for people who who don't like to think about the language they use to let themselves off the hook right. for what they say. Yeah, yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Today we're Get taking her, her down. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. And I mean, I can also, I also find validity in mm. that quote as well, right? So um, special education um, or, or disability advocacy is also like 85% of being a cheerleader or a coach, right? You do a lot of coaching people mm-hmm. um, to be brave enough to show up and exist in a space as they are um, in special education land that looks at looks like, well, I'm afraid to go to the regular class now because they all think I'm stupid. And it's sitting down and going, you and I both know you can do this. You did this. Let's get in there and show them what you got. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's very much that like no one can no one can call you. St- you know, I believe in you. Right. But then if you take that same kid and throw him against the wall 20 times, mm-hmm. like the ability for me to like convince them that they belong has right. completely diminished right mm-hmm. so again i mean and just like we chatted about earlier it goes back to hope mm-hmm. you've got to be able to retain some sense of hope for that marginalized person that change will happen or right. you know it's just speak mm-hmm. um well and and it's it's very powerful for people to be able to say that you know the words other people say you know i i can be strong enough that i it won't affect me but at the same time, that doesn't let people off the hook. They sh- they still shouldn't say horrible things to people. Right. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter whether or not that person is strong enough to take it. It, it doesn't we still shouldn't say those things. You know, it's yeah. You, you want someone you want someone to be able to. Know that someone referring to them in the wrong way or n- naming their disability first doesn't define them. On the other hand, that person should still know better. Right. Right. It's, it's, yeah. You're it's responsible a, for your, your impact as well as your intent. Yeah. Just cause you don't intend to hurt someone. You're still responsible if your words or actions do hurt somebody. Right. And then you get into that space of like, what happens when you don't know what you don't know, or if yes. you've lived your whole life in circles where I think a lot about, um, I did youth ministry for a number of years and I was in a large church, um, for, about four years where I had 17 different high schools represented all over Tulsa, including some of the big private schools and those kind of things. When you start getting into spaces where you have kiddos that have gone through, you know, quality um, or what we term quality education in private schools, but that their admissions criteria is also based off of ability or only choosing a certain type of student or those kind of things. Um, I would often run into this educational piece of I'd be trying to teach something like this or, you know, like this. You may have heard this language and I would get this kind of um, pushback because it was brand new information I was putting in these young people's minds. They had never had the chance to stop and consider, you know, what it would look like if something, you know, if they were to, um, you know, work alongside someone who was blind or had um a lower IQ or, you know, those kind of things. And the gift was always being able to do that with young people, with teenagers, mm-hmm. um, because there's, even though there may be pushback, there's usually a little bit of that, like, useful exuberance to like, well, I'm going to go do all my research to prove them wrong. And then typically they, they end up being proved wrong, mm-hmm. which then creates the growth and the change. Adults, man, they're the worst. Um, <laughs> um, because there's Fact. you you have so much ego and pride to defend that it's um it's harder to get to that place where you're like, man, not only am I doing some stuff that's really 
bad, but um, I've been doing it for years, right? How, how do you break through that? I mean, do you use personal stories? Do you use data and research? What what what? Yeah, works. Is there a magic bullet work? to get older people to understand <laughs> that their words need to change? Okay, so Jennifer's magic solution <laughs> yes. to solving all the listen, inequity listen, and oppression listeners. in the world. Yes, here we go. Here we go. There's no magical solution. No. Um, again, it's. <laughs> how it feels yeah. <laughs> deep in the inside. Um, really, it's about access points and education, right? Like there are different things you can do um, to help people enter into that space. I think the number one thing, I mean, really, if you were going to go for like the magic potion, it's storytelling. Um, that seems storytelling, non-confrontational storytelling. When I do... Um, in the church when we are trying to help people understand um, the LGBTQ movements and why like hearing these voices are important. A panel of four to five people that just have a chance for five or 10 minutes to tell a story. Um, typically a story of how they've been very hurt by the church or the institution. Um, and then letting people process within themselves, either with journaling or writing down a question um, and thinking about it and then coming back or like having a follow-up event and having the questions be able to be given to the presenters and answered in a way where you don't ever want to create a di a, an opportunity for a very angry person who has just been told their whole life is wrong and their church lied to them um, to stand up and yell at someone who has just bared their soul. But Creating that opportunity for both of those people to be in the room, be able to keep both of them safe, and being able to keep the people that need to hear the truth, let them be uncomfortable, is is really important. Um, that also works, too, with um, disability advocacy and kids specifically. Um, when I can... When I advocate and do things um, at a legislative level, level and when we can get kids to go up to... Um, an elected official and say, this is why, like, I can't vote. I'm 12. But let me tell you these stories that happened to me at school. So if you would change this, this would stop happening. That becomes the power. Mm -hmm. And then that all does, it dials back down to community. And when you actually see people for who they are, not who you project them to be mm -hmm. and have to um, embody their humanity together, you know, it, it moves from this like, being able to put people as lesser than and be, be creating an equal, equality level, which makes it a lot harder to throw people away. So final question before our activity. I know a lot of like, like well-meaning progressive people who I've had the same discussion with, and it's about pronouns. And when I explain that some, some people prefer to use they as a, as the pronoun instead of he or she, and they argue they already has a meaning. It's plural. I'm like, that may be true, but we tried to create a new word for it. It didn't take. They is what they've chosen. They is what they want us to use. Why are you fighting me on this? And just so I can say, they're also grammatically wrong. They has historically been used to refer to things singularly, at least in colloquial language. True. That's true. But yes, but help me help me convince them that it's okay for people to use they, I guess. So I use a modified version of what Chris just offered. Um, I say, <laughs> so um, I leave this room or someone leaves this room and they have left their backpack here. Or you are in a meeting of 100 people and you find a backpack. Backpack does not have a gender. You do not know who brought this backpack. Frequently, you will say, whose backpack is it? Can we find out who they are? Um, so again, you know, like we do it we just don't often think about it. Again, it depends on you can you can make the you can make the argument that we've been doing it for years. We just haven't formally named it. You can make the argument that when you respect people's identity, you are holding their humanity. Um, you can also look at it. Um, I often use the example of children um, in foster care, like sometimes they come into care and they've been with a family for 10 years and they decide that a name from their current foster family has more meaning for them than one they came from. And they may just decide to use that name, but aren't able to go through the process of changing it. You know, that's not hurting anybody. Um, it may not really, you know, it's not in their legal documents, but you know, 
plenty of people have done it. I think that, again, the you know, the answer to that is I try to figure out where the entry point is. Like, why are they pushing back? Like, I'm not crazy, though. There was a time when people tried to adopt Z as a non-gendered pronoun, right? I'm not crazy. I didn't make this up. No, and actually there, right? are, still, okay. there are still, um, you know, there are people that may still prefer that. Okay. Um, there's actually probably a gazillion and four different mm-hmm. types of pronouns. Sometimes um, I know young people specifically don't like any of them, them even even alternative mainstream options <laughs> teenagers <laughs> anyway so they make up their own right and if that's what works for you go for it um so you'll see um in pronoun land you'll find buttons that say like my pronouns are he um he him she hers they them or ask me about my pronouns or mm-hmm. um a lot of places will say my pronouns are and then they'll leave like the sticker or the button blank so people can just fill them in. I've noticed that in email signatures, I mean, OCCJ does that on their, in their email signatures, a lot of diversity and inclusion, people have that in theirs. Mm-hmm. And so, which is good. Like we shouldn't hide what our pronouns are, but for people who aren't used to having to do that, they're right. like, why are people throwing pronouns in my face? Right. So, and I think it also comes from a time again, you know, we're, we're at this place where we have different generations of people that have lived in very different societies with different constructs Mm -hmm. of gender and things like that. Um, So at the top end of um, our generation that's still living, um, like there were very clear men did this, women did this, this is the way I dress. It's very obvious, right? And then you start to move down towards the younger folks and it becomes more fluidity is okay. And it becomes, you know, those kind of things. So I think as long as we still have that great of a, I don't know if we can call it chasm or spectrum in the world, we're still going to like struggle with how do we all um, coexist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, one of the great ways to do that is just to lead and to normalize it. You know, the more people mm-hmm. that put it on their email signatures, you know, someday it will probably just be a standard email signature to have yeah. it on there. It's not going to be this revolutionary act, no. but for I mean, right now it is. Hopefully with that that time we found a technology that's better than email, but uh, <laughs> hopefully we can hope. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on to the last part, is there anything, I know that you're in a transitory period, but is there anything upcoming that you'd want our listeners to, to know about mm-hmm. like an event or say a talk that <laughs> has Ted in front of it? And maybe ends up. with an X. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I am giving a Ted talk at the <laughs> university of Tulsa. Um, TEDx Tulsa um, will be happening April 3rd, and um, this year's theme is Breaking Barriers. Um, and it's there's a great lineup of, of folks. I will be um, there talking about inclusive culture, specifically within the context of education and how we need to shift the paradigm of how we think about education and who education serves and really what is education. Um, but then also um, a very large portion of the talk is a call to action on, um, you know, how everyone plays a part in um, either um, shifting the paradigm or maintaining the paradigm. Um, there are lots of different um, talks that will be happening. Some folks are doing um, restorative justice, criminal justice. There are talks about how to um, like Brene brown S talks about like focusing on yourself and productivity and things like that. Um, it's, it's a really good, good lineup of folks this year. And then the title, um, the theme breaking barriers is just very timely, especially I believe now for um, where we are in Tulsa history and things like that going forward. Sure. Well, oh, it's, I will yeah. say it sounds like if you're listening to this podcast, there's probably going to be something for you there at, at, at that lineup. Yes. So yeah. check it out. How, how can people find out about the the details, the when, the where, and all that stuff, or keep sure. the rest of it? Sure. There's um, a TEDx Tulsa Facebook page, and they have also recently linked um, tickets are live, so you can purchase tickets now. Um, I think they're around ten ish dollars. I know that if you're a student at TU, they will email a student or faculty at TU. They will email you out a code, and you can go for free. So. Um, you know, the price what if you just live by TU? <laughs> um, go make friends All right. at TU. They'll send make... you a code that'll allow you to buy a ticket <laughs> okay. for ten dollars. Okay, that, right. that's fair. That's fair. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can um, check out their their Facebook page. And we will we'll, keep... we'll link to it in the show notes. That would be phenomenal if I remember to. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so now how how we end every pod for good episode? Uh, 
that we record here uh, is we, we ask our guests to look around the, the rant nine productions nerd cave and find something that either calls to them or they are, they are very curious about and want to want, want us to explain what it is. So I'll edit out the time that you are looking, but is there like a list of things people have chosen prior? I mean, I can tell you. So uh, the Homer Simpson Pia, uh, Chia Pet's been uh, chosen twice. The James Inc. one's been chosen a couple James times. Brown. James Brown, sorry. What did I say, James Inc.? James Inc. Oh, yeah. yeah, makes sense. It's a different podcast. Yeah. Uh, the painting behind me. A couple times. Yeah. Okay. And there there yeah. are things over here yes. as well, if you just wanna, FYI. If you want to take the headphones off and look at the uh, my DVD Blu-ray collection. Have um, the Golden Girls been chosen? No, no, they have not. Please tell me you're going to choose them. I'm going to choose them. <laughs> oh, yes, she has chosen. I, I yeah. was actually looking at them at the beginning going, yes. like, that is like, quite like a heavenly choir mm-hmm. watching over. Ah, she's chosen the Golden Girls. Finally, people always ask me who they are. I'm like, oh, they're clearly the Golden Girls. How I can mean, you not know? Look at the glasses. Look at the glasses. That like, is, that's yeah. clearly Sophia. Anyway. Well, excellent. We'll get a picture of you with them. Yes. Um, and which will be shared on Facebook, you know, pushing this episode. Sweet. So uh, anything else, Chris? Well, you didn't. I want to know more about, ta- the, Golden about oh, the Golden Girls. Oh, well, okay. 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 <laughs> Sorry. On, You're right. Okay. If people want to know why I have the Funko so, Pop Golden Girls. Question. Yes. Later was, for our I, Golden I, Girls podcast. God, I wish. I was going to say, are they real Golden Girls? Are they life-size cutouts? You need to explain <laughs> yes, for the what people. It is. They are. So if. If people aren't familiar, Funko Pop dolls are ones that are about, what, uh, three inches tall? Uh, three to six inches tall? I, with... I, don't, I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll measure four it later. Inches. Four, like, four, four inches. Four inches, yes. Uh, listen, their size doesn't matter, all right? <laughs> um, they are little dolls that all kind of have similar eyes and... Sort of bobblehead They bobblehead. And the reason I own them is because I love the Golden Girls. It was something my mom and I bonded over. It's where I learned to make a multitude of sex jokes that I can make now as an adult. And uh, it was just one of my favorite shows. And eventually there'll be a poster that I got at a Boston Comic-Con that is a Kill Bill Dorothy from the Golden Girls crossover <gasps> where it's Dorothy in the Kill Bill outfit. Um, we, I just need wonderful. to find it. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm so, I'm mm-hmm. so, I've been waiting for someone to pick them. They are very prominently placed. I know. And so, so I, Jesse, who's your favorite Golden Girl? Oh, that's a toughie. Mm. <sighs> I mean, it's got to be Dorothy. I mean, Dorothy is just so sarcastic. And it's like she literally slow claps the entire show. (laughs) And that just really appeals to me. So I would say her. Chris, do you have a favorite Golden Girl? (sighs) It's tough. Because, see, I actually would make fun of Jesse for watching Golden Mm -hmm. Girls um, until I started watching Golden Girls. And then I... (laughs) Didn't mention it. I just stopped making fun of them. Oh, right. so that explains that. Okay. Um, see, and that is exactly how diversity and inclusion works. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's exposure and repetitive storytelling. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, oh, man, I feel like Dorothy was kind of my my spirit animal. She really is. So, yeah. You know, right there I with you. Love the the sarcastic humor. She's just so like both beaten down by life, but constantly fighting back against it. <laughs> and I, I just, that, that feels very much, it feels like me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, the, it's amazing how many like friends who are around my age, who I discover now as adults also mm-hmm. love the golden girls. And yeah. none of us, none of us talked about it. I know, Cause right now it's a lady show. Yeah. But I mean, I literally got my, uh, like bedtime in middle school pushed back an hour because they moved the golden <laughs> girls reruns up an hour that's funny. and uh i mean that's what that's what me and my mom did mm-hmm. it's like we watched the golden girls together the same so, episodes over and over again which actually trained me to watch all the star trek episodes over go. and over again oh, so there you go yeah so jennifer what about you yeah which, your who's favorite? your favorite it's dorothy yes i mean yeah. apparently this is <laughs> yeah. hashtag team dorothy yeah team dorothy all the way i mean she was i feel like the rest of them were kind of all one note a lot of times I feel like Dorothy had the as sort of the uh, like her coming to the house was the you know inciting incident of the story. She was the one the story kind of funneled its way through. Mm-hmm. And of course, like Stan, her ridiculously stupid ex-husband, like he was great, too. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, well, excellent. So we're all Dorothy fans. So mm-hmm. the rest of them can we're suck all- it. Wait, I almost said friends of Dorothy, but that has a that, different that, connotation. That does have a different connotation. And, and, or maybe well, I wonder if it's the same Dorothy. It could be. Mm. Mm. There's a podcast episode for you. Right yes, there. all right. You can dig deep into that. We'll yeah. research we'll research the friends of Dorothy. I think it'll only be five minutes long. But <laughs> thank you so much for joining yes, us today. Absolutely. Much. Thanks for having me. I hope you all enjoyed our episode with Jennifer Solis. To find out more about her TEDx talk, 
check out our show notes. Of course, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Podcast for Good, on Twitter, at pods number four good. And please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts or many any of the other places where podcasts are available. Thank you all for listening and don't forget, get done, Delsa. Travel